I'm from California. So until very recently, the American Museum of Natural History in New York City only existed for me as a movie location. The kind of place where precocious school children go to gawk at creepily lifelike dioramas, which, as far as I can tell, may come alive at night? But recently I moved to New York and then I went to the museum for myself, decided to gawk at the dioramas, and here's what I found. They're transporting. They're amazing. My favorite one, I think, is the Canadian Lynx. It's set in a national park in Quebec, and it shows a lynx on the trail of a snowshoe hare. So there's this sweeping mountain scene in the background, and then in the foreground, the cat stalks through the snow. And you look at it for a while, and then you notice, oh, there's actually tracks in the snow. And then you follow the tracks, and there's a snowshoe hare tucked underneath a snow-covered bush. It's really hard to spot because it's hiding. That's what's happening in the scene. These dioramas are incredibly lifelike. It's something that has to do with how the animals are posed, or in the case of the Canadian lynx, maybe the delicate fluff of the fake snow, or maybe the fact that you can almost sort of feel the clear cold sky pressing through the glass of the display. The dioramas, like I said, are amazing. But after visiting a few more times, I realized something that's even kind of more impressive, which is the fact that at any given moment, the museum has a couple of temporary exhibitions, which show for six or nine months, and then travel around the country, and they build them themselves. They have all the same detail and scientific rigor, but they've got to get put together on pretty short order, and they've got to be designed so they can be packed up and shipped so that other museums around the country can show them to people. So when I started poking around, I found out that these things are usually put together by the museum's exhibition team, and that they've got an amazing workshop in a cavernous space on the fifth floor of the museum. The team of preparators, which are artists and craftsmen, more or less, work with curators, who are scientists, more or less, to turn out exhibits that teach the public about everything from dinosaurs to microbes to, starting November 21st, Cuba. So, in our unofficial quest to find the country's coolest workshops, me and Larisa Arkanish decided to visit the shop to see what it takes to bring to life America's soon-to-be favorite Caribbean island. I'm Kevin Dubsik, and this is How Your World Works. For today's show, we're in the exhibition department of the American Museum of Natural History. They're working on their next temporary exhibition, which is about Cuba, and they build the whole exhibition here. Looking around, it's like there's all these models of fish and antlers, and there's a coral reef behind us. In several parts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so we came up in a big like freight elevator, but you can see why they have to break these things down into pieces, because the whole coral reef would definitely not fit in that elevator. <laughs> no. Although it was a big elevator, bigger than my apartment. So one of the things we wanted to find out is how the craftsmen who build these things work with the curators who are, you know, I guess the scientists, how they feed back and forth. Like we were just walking to the museum earlier, we were wondering how they pose these things and like when somebody's preparing an animal, how do they how ask? How do you decide what pose to put yeah. them? I'll just have everybody introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Anna Luz-Porzakanski. I'm director of the Center for Biodiversity and Conservation here at the museum. And I'm uh, Chris Raxworthy. I'm a curator in reptiles and amphibians. And uh, I'm a co-curator on this uh, exhibition on Cuba. But I also do a lot of work with reptiles and amphibians throughout the world. I'm Jason Brohm, a senior principal preparator at the AMNH. And we're the... Uh, we're the exhibit artists that build all the exhibits. And I'm Rebecca Mia, and I'm also a senior principal preparator at the Museum of Natural History, and I also work with Jason on building exhibits for the museum. And you're wearing, like, protective clothing right now. What's that about? Um, it's very dangerous. No, uh, I'm working on the croc, and we're casting, we're casting it at this point, so there's a lot of chemicals involved. Got it. Um, so I guess the first thing we're going to look at is this. Uh, it's an owl that you guys are, are putting together. 
It's Ornomegalonyx, which is the, uh, the giant extinct ground owl of Cuba, lived during the Pleistocene or the last ice age. It was uh, a ground bird and may have had some power for flight, but we don't really know. Uh, and it, it subsisted on a diet of rodents and ground sloths. Um, so many of these very special rodents are still in Cuba, but the ground sloths have gone extinct, as has the owl. I'm standing next to it right now, and it's you know almost to my shoulders. It's really, really impressive. And uh, it would have been a terrifying predator. What always strikes me is it was the biggest, baddest uh, predator on Cuba. So this was the guy that was strutting around, basically uh, you know, king of the forests, and uh, nothing else could uh, challenge it. And uh, it really was uh, uh, an impressive animal. If you look at the size of its talons, I mean, they must be a good four inches long and if you came across this when you uh, uh, if it had been still in Cuba when you arrived you would have really uh, wanted to run away from this thing it <laughs> could have made your day very very bad what's the whole process of figuring out first of all what you're going to put in your exhibitions and then and how long does it take if you're asking about the um, how we decide what goes in each show yeah. I think Dr. Rax Dr. Rax really told me that it was like in the prospectus like there must be an ornamegalonyx in this show <laughs> when, we're, when we're putting together, I, yeah. I worked on a, a very early on a document about all the things I wanted in this exhibition. And when I went to Cuba for the first time and heard about this giant extinct owl, it was just so incredible to me. I mean, the fact also Cuba has the smallest bird in the world, this bee hummingbird. But I said we have to have to build a model of this uh, owl because it's so uh, so incredible. Really bring it to life. It's going to be the the very first one we think that is really showing the owl exactly as it would have been in life, so mm -hmm. scientifically accurate. There were some complexities in making it uh, accurate. We know it only from a few bones in caves uh, that were discovered in caves in Cuba, subfossil material. And I've, I've, my, myself, I've only seen black and white photos of them that were published in the 50s. Um, and they look like they're all encrusted with calcite from, from like the dripping uh, you know, carbonate in the, in the uh, caves, the same way that stalactites or whatever would be made. But so for the last few months, we've been researching this animal, we've been uh, trying to get extremely accurate measurements of what its, what, what its body size would be and what the different proportions of the body parts would be. We've had uh, Dr. Dr. Porzakonski's help. We've had uh, Dr. Suarez has uh, a lot of uh, evidence that I didn't know about just from reading the literature. And we also had help from a guy named Daniel Field at Yale who just applied for his PhD and he had built a uh, statistical regression, a mathematical database and model so that we could give him the bones that we did have, which were few, and he could give us the most likely size of all the other bones. And that gave us the most accurate uh, proportions we could get. We don't um, know anything of its feathers. We don't know anything of its coloration, for example. The way you're seeing it now, it's just a sculpture, but we have to paint it uh, you know, with the most likely color pattern as well for the feathers. So this we do a lot in our shows because we do a lot of dinosaurs and other extinct animals. We go to other lines of evidence. We go to the closest ancestor, closest relative, the family, uh, the fa you know, natural family, and then also uh, sometimes ecological analogs. That's not going to be so much the case here, but like animals that live in uh, grasslands tend to be a little bit more tawny colored. Animals that live in forests can be darker and lighter dappled, that sort of thing. This is a forest animal, and its closest relative, we found it from Dr. Suarez, is the bare-legged Cuban owl. Right, and so Jason's using, really, uh, what we know about the, the tree of life and the tree of, the tree of birds to really guide us in how we reconstruct 
uh, the looks of ornomegalonyx. We're going we're gonna to use its closest relative, uh, Megaro bias, I guess it is in Latin, to, to reconstruct the color pattern, but it has different proportions from that owl, and it's much, much bigger than that owl. So Dr. Suarez also said that for its proportions and its lifestyle, the best analog would be the burrowing owl, which is the only other ground owl that I'm aware of, because it has like, much longer legs. It tends to prey on animals with its bill more than its claws, because it has to stand on its feet. Mm -hmm and uh, it runs around on the ground as, it's, as a primary way of hunting uh, its prey. And, and it, was a, it was a bit of a scientific riddle, really. Uh, also, we had a lot of discussions about what to call it because uh, paleontologists disagree up to this day of how many species we have in this genus of owl because mm -hmm. it's all based on fragments of bones or just a few bones. And so and in the beginning, uh, some scientists thought that there were many different species of different sizes. And now people think, well, maybe these are just uh, different age animals. And, you know, maybe the species we thought was the largest is actually the same as some of the smaller material. And so uh, we think that the, the, the kind of our understanding of the species in this genus is going to change quite a bit in coming years. And so we're just being conservative and and, uh, and not committing to, to calling it a special, a particular species or not, because uh, it's really an active area of investigation. That's interesting. And so, Jason, what, what's your background that you know how to build extinct owls? My background is I've worked here for 18 years. So <laughs> I, I, I did start college in, in a biology program, and I ended with a Master's of Fine Art. Uh, so I, I always did art and science kind of at the same time. but. It was mostly being here, you know, working. Uh, I've done, I think, four dinosaur shows now where we've worked very closely with those curators. Um, and, you know, they've taken us under their wing, given us uh, a lot of reading material. And, you know, we've gotten to meet some of the other great paleo artists uh, of the world. And we trade tips and we, we trade ways of thinking about it. Um, but mostly it's just been, a, you know, an 18-year field of study, I think, for us, just doing it over and over and over again. And, each time you put it up and the show opens, for me, I always think, oh, that one angle does not look right. I just wish I had another month. I could have fixed that, you know? And so that happens 18 years in a row, and eventually you're hard enough on yourself that you try to make sure you see it from all the angles before you install it. Can you talk about kind of the dialogue that goes into figuring out, like, how it's going to be posed and presented? In this case, it's, it's inside of, just in the opening of a cave, because that's where we find the bones, just right at the mouth of a limestone cave. and so. We had to also research the texture of Cuban limestone and the actual caves where these, where these remains are found. So what it's standing on there, it looks like a kind of like a Hummel figurine and that has a large base with a couple, you know, with a couple details on it. That's so that it doesn't break, but, but it's also part of the, of the um, limestone cave in which the remains are found. Yeah. And, we, and we made a decision to d display the owl at the entrance of the cave because they didn't live in caves. We know that they were in open, open habitats. But when they did take refuge inside the mouth of caves and ate their meals there and sometimes died there and left their bones there, that's where we find them. And so, so you will, that's what you will see in the exhibition is the opening of a cave and ornomegalonyx uh, coming in. We also did um, a fair amount of discussion about what the ideal 
pose of the animal will be the owl. And uh, Jason really, I mean, how excited you were about its stubby short wings, which is why we have this uncertainty about, you know, how good a fly it really was. But uh, it was your idea to really show off those wings by uh, having the bird actually with its uh, wings extended. So it almost looks somewhat ridiculous the way it's standing there. It's vicious in terms of its size and the size of the talons, but then it's actually flapping its little short stubby wings at you at the same time. So uh, it's kind of got this lovely uh, uh, lifelike uh, uh, energetic pose. The initial project it said the wings should be folded. In the initial phases, I made a couple small maquettes, just small little scale models of the owl. And then I asked uh, my supervisor, do you think there'd be any chance that it could just have its wings out like this a little bit? And then I would make the little maquette. And then, uh, you know, that's the way I can put, I can put out proposals and see if, if people hate it or people like it. And I got lucky in this case. I got to make unfurled wings. So, And, and I think it helps demonstrate that it's, uh, yeah, like either, either completely flightless or just on the edge. And I was curious, Chris, because you said this was sort of like an element in yeah. the proposals from the beginning that you thought, I have to see this thing. What's it like actually being able to, to see it now? It's, it's fantastic. I mean, it really sort of suddenly brings um, a few uh, bony elements and some you know, drawings you've seen in books to life. I mean, you can feel like you're actually meeting this owl face to face. And uh, that would be an experience which you know, uh, uh, hasn't been possible for humans for thousands of years. It really is powerful. I have to tell you that we've worked pretty closely also with Cuban colleagues, right? Some of them Jason already mentioned, like Dr. William Suarez, who was a curator of ornithology at the National Museum of Natural History in Havana for many years. And they are extremely excited to see it. They haven't seen it yet. And they really, I think it'll be a big hit. And I think, you know, a dream of mine would be to be able to replicate it and bring it to Cuba. I think that would be fantastic. So should we walk to the next, uh, the next thing? Yeah, so our spaces are divided into like two sections and the front space that we were just looking at the owl in is sort of our personal workspace and setup area. Um, and then as you go through those double doors, we enter into the wood shop area, the metal shop area, and where we do a lot of casting of chemicals. Uh, we've broken it up because for safety reasons, you don't want to be breathing in all the stuff that we have to do back here. Um, and now we're walking towards our fume hood, which is where we do a lot of casting and uh, assembly of plastics. Got it. Yeah, what do you think of this place? It's really cool. We just walked into a room and they're building. I don't, I don't want to say that it's definitively a swamp, but it looks like a swamp to me. Yeah. There's uh, big blades of grass. They're actually making grass right in front of us. <laughs> okay, so what are we looking at now? So right now you're looking at parts of a Cuban crocodile. Uh, it's kind of hard to see exactly what's going on, but you have the body that, we, that I just cast in a lightweight polyester resin. And then in these other molds are the arms and the legs that are gonna get attached. Um, we also have the head that's been completed. So it's essentially in a Frankenstein-like moment where everything has to kind of get stitched together before you can see it in its final form. Um, but behind you, it's actually going to be going in this swamp scene. Um, there are these tall reeds and there's mangrove forest and there's a swamp that um, is going to be depicting this crocodile leaping straight up out of the water. Um, what's kind of amazing about what I've learned about this particular species is that it can literally jump out of the water to its tail. So in this scene, it's going to be in the pursuit of a roseate spoonbill. So it's a, fl a flying bird will be hovering above it. 
and it's sort of this epic struggle. You're not sure if uh, he's caught the bird or not. Yeah, we're hoping with um, this diorama to really catch uh, that moment uh, uh, of the crocodile actually at full leap out of the water. And uh, Cuban crocodiles um, have a famous reputation for leaping. People have observed them, for example, taking things like um, these endemic larger rodents in Cuba, the hutias, which can get up to about 15 pounds. And these large rat-like animals are often scurrying around on branches near uh, wetlands. And this area that we're actually putting the uh, crocodile in, it's actually a representation of the Zapata uh, wetlands in Cuba, which is the biggest and um, uh, most important wetland area in uh, Cuba, and even in the, uh, the Caribbean. And it's an amazing area, again, for uh, uh, having species which are uh, endemic to the, uh, the wetlands, or uh, uh, their populations nowadays largely survive there. And the Cuban crocodile is um, a particularly rare species. The population is uh, down to just a few thousand individuals. And um, it's now actively actually rebounding the populations through uh, um, very careful uh, management uh, in Cuba. As we're standing here in this swamp scene, like blades of, of swamp grass, I guess, are being attached kind of one by one. Can you actually talk about what this is made of and what the crocodile is made of as well? So the blades of grass were actually uh, made out of plastic styrene, which uh, I think a bunch of people actually went to the flower district in uh, Midtown and found something that was very similar and then had we had them made in China to a specific length and shipped over here. So they came shipped white and then they had to be painted and reassembled to look like uh, blades of grass. We call it herbivory where you go ahead and you paint in like insect damage and um, de- you know leaves that, leaves that are in the process of dying, all that sort of treatment we call herbivory. So um, that's happening behind the croc. Um, the croc itself was originally sculpted in clay. There was a steel armature and um, surprisingly we don't have a full specimen to measure off of in the museum. We just had the skull which came from a zoo, the Bronx Zoo. Um, it was Fidel was the name of the croc. Um, <laughs> Fidel uh, um, was uh, um, a live crocodile that um, supposedly even Fidel Castro himself saw in the 1950s when he came to the Bronx Zoo. And uh, he died in the, uh, the last uh, 15 years. And um, afterwards, um, the Bronx Zoo donated um, him to the museum. We just had the skull that we had to measure from. So from there, I worked with Chris to figure out what the overall length of the croc would have been based on that skull length, and then go from there. Um, we even worked. I even worked with an American croc that we have in the collection, mm. but it still wasn't as large as this one um, ended up being. So there was a little bit of, you know, I've done a lot of dinosaur reconstruction, so it's a similar sort of um, technique where you kind of have to base everything off of one bone or you know part of the animal and infer from there. One of the um, fun things about crocodiles, and I suppose reptiles in general, is of course they're covered in scales. And uh, uh, the scales are uh, very much uh, fixed in space. And so you can use them almost like a map where uh, once you have uh, uh, the, uh, the head, uh, and the body proportions, you can use the scales to act as a sort of a landmark uh, features to actually get the rest of the scaling correctly. How do you make it look wet? That's coated with a, a resin, essentially. It's a plastic that gets coated over like a painted mud surface. Um, and it's just carefully coated layer by layer to, to give the effect of like a wettened area. Um, and then the water surface itself is a 
a sheet of uh, plexi that will then get, it's painted underneath to show like a sort of swampy, you know, it's not totally clear. And then uh, over top of that, there's, they're gonna paint a textured water surface. Um, because again, this thing is going to be leaping out of the water, and so we also have to recreate like a splash that happens around the tail. Um, and that will happen after it gets installed. Do you guys have um, specialties like for the kinds of animals that you make? Uh, when I first began working here, I made a lot of trees. And then <laughs> from there, I, I made a lot of insects. And then from there, I started doing a lot of large animals um, but I don't have a specialty I enjoy yeah, I was gonna ask you what yeah your favorite is. I, I like doing a lot of prehistoric stuff just because the information's not readily available and that sort of like beauty of like discovery a mystery yeah that you're kind of unfolding and, and just learning how to look at things differently I think a lot of times um, with the dinosaur reconstructions for instance you go online you see an image and you think that's what it should be but once you actually work with the curators and speak with them and read the papers, you realize, oh, you know, that was an assumed, you know, attribute of this dinosaur. It doesn't, it doesn't actually show up in the fossil evidence. So there's a lot of, like, we, we have to kind of erase what we know when we're building. And it's very unpredictable. I mean, uh, uh, I think it's so, uh, we cover so many different topics in natural history in this museum and in our exhibitions. And so, uh, uh, um, for the staff in the exhibition department, I sometimes feel like a little bit sorry for them because they just suddenly get inundated with what appears to be on the face of it almost impossible requests. Like, you know, can you recreate this giant leaping crocodile? I mean, that's crazy. Uh, <laughs> it's such a, an ambitious uh, thing to do. And yet, uh, I think that's probably also uh, the fun part uh, of working at this museum is that uh, it's always so varied the type of work you get to do. And uh, for me as a curator of this exhibition, it was so while to be in meetings talking about these things in a very abstract way and then literally within a couple of weeks suddenly walking up to the studio here and watching it actually being built i mean uh, uh from uh, uh these um discussions and so it's a great uh, uh experience to actually uh, uh see just how much abilities we have uh, in the exhibition staff. Did you have a biology background like Jason did, or did you come at this purely as an artist? Um, I have a double degree in sculpture and painting, so I don't have a degree in science, but my, uh, I could name like 10 family members who are physicians, um, all in the sciences. So there was a strong influence of uh, science in you know my upbringing. So it kind of blended um, nicely with their expectations of me as an artist. And I do feel like there's a lot of overlap in this, the kind of discovery that we do as artists and the kind of discovery that a scientist does uh, in their work, you know. It's always like looking at things with like a, a new, fresh eye and not being kind of um, affected by other people's opinions at times. So I think it's crucial in the creative way that we both think. I wanted to ask, this is just amazing as a workshop space, so when something comes in and requests like we need to make a crocodile sleeping out of the water, like what kind of tools and materials do you have at your disposal here to work with? Uh, we have, uh, it's, it's funny because we, we have a wood shop, we have a metal shop, we have a casting um, facilities to do plastics. We don't do a lot of uh, computer uh, animations yet. I mean, we, they do them downstairs, but we don't actually utilize them so much up here. Um, we do in some instances, I, but the larger stuff is kind of, um, it's harder to do uh, in the scale that we need them to be done at. So, um, but we, all of us here 
can do various um, things. Like a lot of us can weld and work in wood and sculpt in clay and paint um, backdrops, paint animals. Um, it's almost like a, you come with one degree, but then by the time you've worked here for a long enough time, you can do 20 other things. So we're, we're fortunate enough that we have a group of artists that you know, have specialties in some areas, but that there we teach each other a lot of other skills. So, any particular specimen that you were making that was like particularly difficult or particularly fun to try to recreate? Um, I finished recently the Euteranus that's up in the dinosaur show now, um, and that was like a physical challenge. It was such a large animal to sculpt and then feather, um, and also um, the. We had some information, but piecing together the overall positioning of it, it took a lot of work. You know, not just from me. I worked with Jason pretty closely. He came up with like the pose, and then we worked with the curators to come up with the you know, making sure it's anatomically accurate. Um, so that was that was a big challenge. But I don't know. Every time I start a new show, it's like I fall in love with the animal I work on, and then I become that becomes my favorite thing. So. <laughs> so you're it pretty changes. much into Crocs right now. Yeah, I'm really into Crocs right now. <laughs> yeah, you know, every uh, scale on the, uh, yeah. on the animal, every I've tooth. the difference between the American right. Croc and the Cuban, nice. which I didn't, you know, I did not know going into this. I just thought, oh, it's a Croc, I'm just, you know. But their scalation is different, you know. And so. the two species are uh, actually sometimes uh, interbreeding, so uh, uh, it's not so easy often to uh, distinguish them in the field. So, uh, but yeah, you've yeah. you've worked now so closely with the morphology <laughs> of the uh, the crocodiles, you've become an expert. We also have a recreation of a crocodile nest, yeah. and uh, crocs are um, unusual amongst reptiles, and they have parental care. They're closely related, actually, to birds. Just like birds, they're also good parents. They build nests and uh, uh, the adult crocs will come and open the nest up and actually carry the babies in their mouth and the um, crocodile babies actually peep when they're uh, ready to hatch and so we're actually showing here um, uh, uh, an incubating crocodile mound uh, with eggs inside and uh, there should be peeping chicks uh, uh, crocodile uh, 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 chicks that are inside and um, we're hoping that um, we can actually sort of highlight the fact that uh, crocodiles are such good parents. How do you figure out which details like that really bring the scene to life? Like you were talking also about sort of the bird that it's going after yeah. and that it creates this tension because right. you don't know if it's yep. successfully catching or not. Like what, how do you think through like what's going to actually it's, make one of these things feel real? The uh, details. So first of all, like when we're creating this diorama, we think about the time of the day and then the season of the year. So you want to make sure the vegetation looks right, the lighting looks right, the animals are appropriately active. And so uh, the idea really is to give you the sense in this immersive uh, uh, world, suddenly that you are in Zapata in the uh, in the forests, we also uh, with the wetlands. We also um, find the soundscape is really crucial. So, for example, you're going to hear some uh, endemic uh, birds calling and some endemic frogs in this uh, wetland scene. So subtle uh, uh, things like uh, uh, the soundscape can also very much uh, put you in place and. Uh, if uh, um, it was appropriate, we could even sort of think about introducing odors perhaps into uh, uh, the area as well. So uh, we're doing a part of the exhibition on um, caves. Uh, I've been in many caves uh, throughout the world and they always have a very distinct smell from the back one or the back, the back poop. And I really wanted to bring that into the, the cave area, but we actually discovered that um, that smell is actually uh, sufficiently unpleasant that uh, uh, it wasn't likely <laughs> to test well with our visitors. We also have to make things 
uh, fairly durable because we do have lots of kids running through. <laughs> so that sort of lends itself to the types of materials we end up using for each animal and how it's getting placed in the show and what sort of barricade we need to put up to keep yeah. people from grabbing stuff. And we didn't mention, but the show has to travel. This is a temporary exhibit and then it's going to be traveling to other other institutions. And so everything you see has to come apart yeah. and be able to be put back together and it all has to fit in particular kinds of crates for shipping. So the work that they do is really remarkable because there's a lot of planning that goes, it's not just the way it looks, but also the way it packs and unpacks and comes together. Do you, speaking of having lots of visitors and kids running around, do you guys, do you get pulled into doing like maintenance or upkeep on any of the permanent collections? We do, we, we have one guy who cleans the entire museum. <laughs> um, he's got a big job, uh, but we, he, he maintains the majority of the floors at the museum, and then the temporary exhibits, sometimes we'll have to come back in and repair various things that get broken over time. There, there is a special department at the museum that, that does exhibit and collection conservation, so they specialize on conserving those artifacts in particular. And do you ever look at those for, like, do you ever go look at any of the permanent collections kind of like as for inspiration when you're working on something new? Oh, all the time. It's like, that was, that's the feedback that we have from the people who used to work here is that what they've created is still valuable to us today. So like sometimes you'll go through, um, there's actually a New York environment scene of a swamp um, and I'm constantly going in there and checking to see how they did like some of the water treatment and like how they built the algae. It's like steel wool. I mean, these are all things that we can still utilize today. Um, some of it gets lost over time, but it's, it's, it's an amazing resource that we have these curators that have just this wealth of knowledge that they can impart on the way that we build something. And then to have artists, you know, from a previous time that we can look at and sort of cross-check our work to theirs. Our research collections, they date back uh, to more than 150 years. Uh, uh, so we have an enormous uh, reference collection. Uh, and then because we're a museum and we uh, love archiving things, we also love as much as possible to sort of archive our old exhibits and objects. And so in my department, Reptiles and Amphibians, we have many of the old um, exhibition content from the original Hall of Amphibians and Reptiles uh, squirreled away. It's a really special place because this is where it's been done over decades and I mean this is where it's all built. So that's our show. Higher World Works is produced by the staff of Popular Mechanics and edited by Jesse Wright Mendoza. We'd like to thank Sarah Bentley and Eddie Bowers from Panoply and Popular Mechanics editor-in-chief Ryan D'Agostino. Please subscribe to our show on iTunes and while you're there, leave us a comment. We'd love to know what you think. And don't forget to check out our sister show, The Most Useful Podcast Ever. If you want to read more about the Museum of Natural History's workshop and other amazing workshops, check out our website, popularmechanics.com podcasts. And while you're there, don't forget that you can subscribe to the print and digital editions of Popular Mechanics magazine for just $13.99 for one year. I'm Kevin Dupsick. Thanks for listening.